You like the Just Baseball show and want to make your own? Let me tell you about Anchor. It's free. There's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Now you can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. The possibilities are endless for what you can create, whether it's music analysis, your own radio show, or something the world's never seen before. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and much more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. It is Friday, April 23rd, and Jack McMullen is unfortunately not here. He decided that going to the Cubs and Mets game was a little bit more important, which it kind of is right now. And what is so great about that is we're bringing on Mets legend, Nelson Figueroa. But I'm joined right now with Arm Layton, one of my boys, one of the co-founders of Just Baseball, a website that we're cooking up, and Locked On Prospects, Locked On Marlins. What are you doing these days? Yeah, I got, got a lot of hats. I'm happy to put on yeah. another one. So th- this was a lot of fun, th- this interview, and I think everyone's really going to enjoy it uh, with Nelson. And this is a really good time for baseball in general. So I was glad we were able to talk to him about some of the things that are going on in baseball, about his awesome career. And uh, as it, per- it pertains to Jack, um, I, all he told me was that he had a conflict. So now that you just ousted him like that, that's that's an interesting conflict we'll give him a pass it's baseball related so i'll get a pass on this one credit to him he is going with his family and he's also a huge cubs fan had these plans and he gets to go see the mets which are puttering a little bit i think right now they're seven and six as we're speaking right now but they have a big game tonight got thumped yesterday 16 to 4 which we bet the over seven and a half runs which you can check out on pete's picks on at project the plate on instagram on tiktok on Twitter, I'm giving out three gambling picks every single day. So instead of us just talking and talking, let's just get straight to Nelson Figueroa. We now welcome on Nelson Figueroa, co-host of The Amazing But True, a New York Mets podcast for the New York Post. He's also won multiple Emmys as a post-game studio analyst for the New York Mets. But we need to talk to you about your career before we get into Met stuff, because you're one of the few players on the planet who can claim they've literally played everywhere. You played in Taiwan, you played in Latin America, you pitched nine seasons in the bigs with six different teams, over 20 plus years of professional baseball experience. And you're also the all-time leader in strikeouts in the minor leagues with 1,505. So through it all, through the hotels, through the airfares, what kept you motivated to grab the ball every fifth day? Well, I remember when I was five years old and the first thing uh, I ever wanted to be was a major league baseball player. I was a baseball player. So I thought it was really the coolest thing in the world when I finally became a baseball player that when I left the country and came back and you have to fill out the customs form and you had to list what your occupation was, baseball player. So 
that always kept me motivated that um, I, I met Mike Morgan early in my career. Mike Morgan was a guy who played for like 12 different teams for 22 years in the big leagues. And he said to me, have arm, will travel. It basically reads like a classified ad, you know. And he goes, you can't control everything. So don't even think about it. Don't even try to go out there, do your best. And uh, I've been very fortunate. Uh, I tell people often that, you know, they, they look up the stats and they look up the numbers. And I tell them, you know, I was a 20 game winner in the big leagues. It took me 11 years, but I won 20 games. So uh, that, that's something that always motivated me was just to have the opportunity and to never have any regrets. Uh, wherever I played, tried to be the best that I could be and always prepared and ready for when the call came. And um, I got to travel all around the world, just like you said in the intro. Uh, I mean, what could be better than that? I, I, I consider myself instead of having regrets and being upset, well, I didn't have that, you know, major league career and, and, and get to just stay in one team for 20 years. I got to travel all over the world, man. I got to make friends on the other side of this planet um, and see how it was a universal language all on its own. And uh, I was very fortunate for that and very blessed. And that's something that I talk to kids about today. You know, I talk to guys who are in the minor leagues who are doing the same thing where they're on the cusp and not knowing what tomorrow might bring. And, hey, you can't control that. But if you get an opportunity to play overseas, you might want to take that because you never know if you get called up. You never know if that call never comes and you're sitting there in AAA, you know, just pining away. And next thing you know, uh, a nice opportunity to make some money. But at the same time, have an experience that is considered for, by me once in a lifetime you go over there and uh, for me everything changed in baseball and, and the reality is this as I finished my career and I retired I could say I, I was able to call myself a, a baseball player for over 20 years and then being an analyst and get paid to talk about baseball and now as a podcaster with the New York Post and I, I'm very blessed that the game of baseball has taken me this far. And what was that whole process like just you know, you, you're playing, of course, in the United States, you're playing in, in Major League Baseball, but it ultimately you were just trying to find a way to keep playing and then eventually get back to the Major Leagues. What was the initial process of like, okay, I'm actually going to go to the other side of the world to play this game because I want to keep playing? Like how hard of that of a decision was that to make? It wasn't that hard because, I, I mean, I, listen, I had my college degree two years after I signed my, my pro contract with the Mets. I finished up my um, degree with Brandeis University. I went back in the off seasons because I promised a lot of people that I was going to be the first one in my family to graduate from college. Um, so once I did that and I had that nice piece of paper up on the wall and could say, hey, you know, if something was to happen to my uh, physical ability that, you know, I would make the most of myself in another way. But I always kept pushing it. Uh, after getting injured and having surgery with the Pirates, um, it was a long journey back. It took me, you know, almost four years before I was uh, back in a major league uniform. But there's where that experience of going, you know, basically I rehabbed in Mexico the first time around, um, was only throwing 81 miles an hour with my best fastball and realized that wasn't going to cut it. Uh, went back to physical therapy in Arizona, uh, signed with the uh, uh, Long Island Ducks in the Atlantic League, um, had two games there, got picked up by the Nationals to pitch in AAA. So to me, it was just an opportunity to pitch and keep pitching. Um, nothing good happened with that. After that uh, initial uh, contract with the Nationals, I wound up not signing back with them the next year and 
kind of the world tour started for me because I had played winter ball in Dominican Republic for the first time and got my first taste of that, which is the best baseball uh, in the winter time. The, the level of talent that plays there and the level of um, the, the fans are just second to none when it comes to the, how passionate they are about baseball. Um, that was where, you know, I started realizing my velocity was coming back. I was able to spin the ball. I, I started to learn how to do different things and move the ball around. And I became a much more complete pitcher um, through the process. Uh, it took me after that between Dominican. So you had Dominican winter ball. Um, then the following year, I tried out for the uh, uh, Seattle Mariners as a side arming reliever. Um, they kept me until two days left in spring training. They wound up releasing me because they didn't have any room left. The domino effect came down in the last two days. I wound up going to Mexico for their summer league. And uh, I was a Chihuahua, uh, Dorado. I was a Dorado of Chihuahua, Mexico. Um, after that season got done, I get a phone call from a gentleman named Jerry Sung to go to Taiwan. I go to Taiwan for a little bit. I'm sitting there just kind of the, the extra guy, training, learning, um, continuing to try and get better. And I had a chance to pitch um, with like two weeks left in the season. I had nine starts all the way through the finals. And I wound up going nine and zero and winning the championship and MVP. So all of a sudden it was like, okay, I'm back at a level that I can now say, hey, I can pitch against anybody in the world. But I wasn't done yet. I went back to Mexican winter ball. Our team didn't make the playoffs. I went to Dominican for winter ball for the finals and the playoffs in the finals. Won the MVP of those finals as well. We won the championship with Aguilas and Santiago, and I finally got a contract offer from the Mets. So it only took me over 285 innings to uh, get a contract offer, and uh, I was back in a affiliated baseball and back in a major league uniform for the first time in 2008 and happened to be with the team that started it all for me, the New York Mets. And I have to ask, just speaking to the amount of travel, it's just – it's just amazing. And I, I saw your interview, I think, with Marvel Studios. And mm -hmm. you said in that interview that in 2002, when you were with the Brewers, you had to move eight times within a year. Can you speak yeah. to that experience? Yeah, yeah. Again, one of the things that you can't control is, you know, if they send you up, they send you down. You In the beginning of the year, I had uh, in that one year period of time, 12 straight months I was started out in Scranton Pennsylvania because I was in AAA with the Phillies um, then I got an apartment in Philadelphia because I ended up with Philadelphia then we moved from Philadelphia to Cherry Hill New Jersey because it was it was nicer and I was being told all the right things yeah hey, you're gonna be part of this rotation and then okay cool so I was in Cherry Hill then opening day comes and I don't make the roster and they want to send me back to AAA and but they put me on waivers um, I wound up getting picked up by the Milwaukee Brewers. So when I go from there, I wound up going to Milwaukee. When I get to Milwaukee, I was in the hotel at first. Then from the hotel, I moved to my buddy's house, um, who lived, his mom and his, uh, his mom and stepdad lived in Milwaukee. I lived there for a little bit. Then my wife came out and we wound up getting an apartment there. So there's three times in one city. I was there for less than two months. Um, and it was just kind of like that throughout that journey as you go up, you know, to the major leagues. I, I don't think people realize like just one step below the, the bright lights is just, it's, it's a jungle. It's a, it's a jungle down there of all the twists and turns that your career takes, that your life takes um, between, you know, getting married, having a second 
having a second home somewhere, you know, having to to find a way to, to get around, sharing vehicles, sharing apartments. You know, I started out in A-ball with five guys living in a two-bedroom apartment. That's what we put down on the lease. We had eight guys living in a two-bedroom apartment. But um, at the end of the day, you know, it was all about having an opportunity to play baseball. And uh, when, when all was said and done, it didn't matter how many times I had to move because – uh, have arm will travel. I uh, slept on a, a lot of couches all over this great globe, and uh, I'll do it again if I have to. And I have to ask because the initial debut for a baseball player has to be one of the greatest feelings in the world. But as you outline your journey through getting back after that four year in between uh, your last major league appearance between 2004 and 2008, what was a better feeling your major league debut or that return through all of the adversity in 2008? That's a great question. It's the first time I've been asked that in my entire career. And it has to definitely be the, I would say the grand reappearance. Um, because the first time, you know, you kind of on top of the world, you can see it, you know what I mean? You can see it, you can taste it, you know, it's just a matter of time. Um, my first go round with the Diamondbacks, I'm up there and, and I was the guy, I, I had the best numbers. I, I had the best stats, but I just wasn't getting an opportunity. I wasn't on the roster. And so everybody else around me was going up. It was frustrating. And I got really frustrated. And finally, I knew it was inevitable. It was going to happen. And, you know, right place, right time, an injury to Todd Stottlemyre, and then I'm up in the big leagues. And so that was great. And I was only 25. The second time after the injury, and I remember when I saw my surgeon, his name was Neil Elitrosh. He was the Dodgers uh, doctor. And he said, you know, 75% of the guys come back better than before. But there was 25% that did not. I couldn't lift my arm after five months without it clicking and popping. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm one of the 25 percent. This is it. Um, but that wasn't the case. I went back in for a second surgery where they cleaned it up. My rotator cuff had healed twice as thick. And I was able to kind of now pitch without any pain. And I felt like my fastball got faster as I got older because I learned how to use my body and my mechanics properly. And I also put on weight because of the surgery. I was always a skinny kid. I was 155 pounds when I first got to the big leagues. So there's little leaguers right now that aren't 155 pounds. You know, they're way more than that. So for me, it was um, getting back there. And I never forget that it was, you know, second game of the season. Pedro pops his groin. I get the phone call because I'm throwing a bullpen down in in AAA because I'm going to start on Thursday. And they're like, no, 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 no. Stop throwing. I'm like, what's the matter? Like, Pedro got hurt. Um, you're getting called up tomorrow. So it was a surreal moment because I hadn't even like bought clothing to get called up. Like I'd, I was going to AAA the whole time. So I, I literally had to go to uh, 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 like a super Walmart while it was open and, and get myself a tie and a shirt and, and make sure that I looked proper because I had the jacket, but I was like, I don't have the shirt and tie for this whole like get up. And I got to the ballpark and I remember I signed the contract right there on the dugout stairs at like 5.30 in the afternoon. And uh, I think it was the seventh inning or the eighth inning of the ball game. I got in the game. I struck out Jorge Cantu and I came off the mound. And um, I remember I just took my hat and I covered my face as I was walking towards the dugout. And, you know, the media asked me afterwards, you know, hey, what was going on right there? What was going through your mind? I was like, don't cry. You know, I don't want anybody to see me shed a tear because it had been so long. And the journey was just there were so many levels to that journey of just kind of renting a caravan, a Dodge caravan, and going from spring training location, 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 just saying, hi, I'm Nelson Figueroa. I was injured for the last few years. Can you take a look at me? 
oh, we don't have any room. Oh, sorry. You know, some guys would come out because they remembered me. Some guys would come out because they coached me before and I get to talk to them at least. But I literally was going from camp to camp. I lived in Arizona and I went to four tryout camps in a week where I had to throw bullpens and I had to keep trying to gas it up to show that I could still throw. And for me, it wasn't a velocity thing. It was always that I could pitch and get outs. So if I didn't get that opportunity to face hitters, there, the value in me wasn't, oh my God, he's throwing 95. If I had, you know, I was touching 90, 91, um, to me, that was good enough because with all my other pitches, I could set up my 90, 91 to look harder. So after all that was said and done to know that the journey was kind of went full circle, I, that would have been a great storybook moment, but it wasn't the last time that I had to go down and come back up and down and come back up. So the roller coaster was a very fun ride. I always say I was very blessed that I had the opportunity 11 times to get called up. Um, most guys get one shot and they're done. So uh, to me, it, it was more than just my arm and my physical ability. It was because I was a good guy in the clubhouse. I was a good teammate. And I usually, if I was with a team before, they tried to get me back at it again at some point, whether through trade or if I got picked up off waivers. So I think uh, that's another lesson I always try to tell young players. Um, you don't want to burn a bridge because you don't have any control over what happens behind closed doors. So never want to burn a bridge, look people in the eye and, you know, be, be accountable for the things that you can't control. And speaking just about burning the bridges and about playing for teams multiple times, you played with the Phillies in 2001 and then re-signed with them in 2010. As a baseball fan, I've always just been curious what that's like. Is it weird? Is it awkward? Is the transition maybe even easier to joining? Or is it a little bit, you know, a little bit off? You know, you started with one team and now you're going back again. It, it's really difficult when it comes down to um, the personnel and, and how things were compared to how they're. So with the Phillies, which is a great observation, the Phillies in 2001, we were at the veteran stadium. The stadium was not very nice. The fans were uh, not very nice. They used to boo Santa Claus and they started to boo Scott Rowland because Larry Boa was kind of painting him out to be this villain which I could never understand. Um, Scott Rowland was one of the hardest workers, one of the gutsiest players I ever played with. And, um, you know, it was terrible the way that things ended for him in Philadelphia. But he was that, that kind of guy that you always looked up to. And if I gave him a ground ball to the left side, uh, to the left side, I knew it was an out. Uh, and that was just a no-brainer. Um, so the fans were different when I went back in 2010 because they just won the World Series. Um, they had this nice new ballpark. They literally, I walked into the ballpark and they're doing the uh, ring ceremony. We're having the ring ceremony um, for winning the World Series. So I went from the worst team in the National League with the Mets um, and I get picked up by the Phillies who were celebrating a world championship. And I'm like, well, you know, maybe things are supposed to happen this way. I get on that staff and I soaked up as much as I could from those guys with between Jamie Moyer's change-up grip, uh, Roy Halladay's cutter grip, Roy Halladay's work ethic and mentality. The guy used to sleep in his own oxygen chamber at one o'clock in the afternoon. Jamie Moyer was swimming laps in a lap pool at four o'clock in the afternoon before a start at seven. Um, Cole Hamels, uh, his regimen. So you saw all these guys that when I was with the Phillies, I saw them like that was where it wasn't they played baseball. These guys worked baseball. They took it serious. They didn't even have Wi-Fi in the clubhouse. That's how serious these guys were. They didn't have Wi-Fi in the clubhouse? No Wi-Fi allowed in the clubhouse. So when you got in the clubhouse, 
you turned off your electronics and you interacted with your teammates. You went and watched film. You went and talked baseball. You went and watched videos. They had the video running all day long with a loop of the picture you were going to be facing that uh, that day. And there was and there was never a complaint. There was never a complaint. Oh man, we don't have Wi-Fi in here. What's... It was like as soon as you realized why you were there and why you're trying to win a, you know, you're trying to you're defending world champion. You want to go back again. Well, there's only one way to do that, and and. I, that was one of the times that I had um, said that this is a different element and this is a different place where I'm at in my career where it wasn't just about being professional. It was about trying to be the best that you could possibly be because they were going to give you that kind of opportunity. You mentioned, uh, you know, picking up things from teammates and learning from those around you. And something I've always kind of thought is that sometimes the most gifted players are, are, typically not always the the best at being able to explain things. Right. And like those that have really had to figure Mm -hmm. it out through the years and have had to really grind it out and make the most of what they have end up being the best coaches or the best analysts. Now you make that transition to being an analyst and you're doing an amazing job and having a second career here doing that. Do you think that your career and the way you were able to just get the most out of your stuff and just take them, take everything you have to the furthest you could. Do you think that's helped you become the analyst that you are and, and be able to see the game through a different lens? Uh, without a doubt. And I think that's what made me such an interesting choice in the beginning, because I was the first, probably the first analyst on SNY that wasn't part of the 86 team. Um, everything was always built around that 86 team. So you had Keith, you had Ron, you had Bobby Ojeda. So everything was always, whatever the 86 Mets say is, you know, that's the Bible. That uh, They're right. They're always going to be right. And when I got there, there I was this journeyman, you know, kid from New York who grew up rooting for the Mets, who played for the Mets, who had a nice, you know, uh, long career. Um, but the one thing that I could talk about that they couldn't was dealing with failure. I could talk about what it was like to get booed off the mound. I could talk about how brutal the fans could be sometime. I could talk about um, really having to persevere through things that you can't control, the ups and downs. I was rooted for the underdog, you know, and I was kind of gave the underdog some more airtime than they probably deserved if they had a good game because I knew how it was for a guy like me. I, you know, you want your moment in the sun. You want you to, to get an opportunity. And you, those opportunities come few and far between. I think that's why – um, one of the highlights of my career thus far was talking about Matt Harvey and his struggles because I'd been there. The only problem is I'd been there with 10 miles an hour less on my fastball. So, and I didn't have all the accolades going around. I didn't have the, you know, the all-star games. I didn't have the key to the city, the dark night name and all that stuff. You know what I had? If I had back-to-back starts where I didn't, where I struggled, I had a one-way ticket to AAA probably. So I, I spoke about that all the time that, he was being given opportunity and opportunity and he wanted to be successful. Even he said, maybe he should go to the minor leagues, but his agent wasn't going to let him do that because it was going to hurt his value in the free agent market. Look where he's at now. It's because, you know, when one man is looking at it only through the business and I feel like the person um, was living as someone else, he was living as the dark night. We never got to see Matt Harvey, the person. You never got to hear an interview of Matt Harvey, the person. He always tried to put on this persona of the Dark Knight. And I think that's what, you know, wronged him in a way because people want you to be held accountable. If you suck, say you suck, but let them know why. If you say that you can be better and you say, oh, those are my mechanics, 
you can't tell New York fans the word mechanics without explaining to them what exactly is it that you're going to fix. Because if you don't fix it in the next game, they're going to let you know about it. And that's what kept happening with Matt Harvey. He kept hiding behind the buzzword of, oh, it's my mechanics. It's my mechanics. It's an easy fix. It's an easy fix. And too many guys do that in this day and age, but they don't really understand what they're saying. They just know what the coaches are telling them. And then they have the track man and then they have the Rapsodo and everything else and all these spin rates and stuff that are telling them. But there's a feel to pitching that no matter what you say to me on spin rates or what numbers or analytics, there's a feel during the game with Bases loaded, two outs. Can I make a pitch, and how do I make that pitch as good as, as best I can? That's something that'll never change. And I think the game has gotten too analytical. Um, but for me, as an analyst, I'm able to explain the good, the bad, the ugly in a way that you know not even Pedro Martinez can, because I don't know if he's ever dealt with getting booed off the mound like that. He's had they, those guys have had so much success. Um, you know, you love to hear about their stories about how you know they struck out. 15 guys before, you know, how they made it look easy. It's really not that easy. You know, we've got, we've gone through so many pitchers um, over the years and all the hype of the five aces and look where we're at today. Jacob deGrom is really the only one that has stood tall throughout all of that. And Jacob deGrom, the best Mm. pitcher in the world, best pitcher on the planet, undisputed, but there is a bit of a problem. Jacob DeGrom has a win-loss record under 500. I'm sure you've known since 2018 with an ERA hovering around two. Mm -hmm. I I just, I need to know what's going on there. What, what is happening with the Mets? And it's not even just the offense, right? I mean, sometimes they don't score enough runs, but sometimes it's the defense. Sometimes it's the bullpen. Where are the Mets when they start with Jacob DeGrom? What's the energy like in the clubhouse? Is it the same as any other game? It, 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 it has to be, but it more so than that is you would think it'd be easier. It's like we have the best pitch on the planet going today. That's what all I'm we saying. Or we got to do is score a couple, right? It, it, but it almost seems like it's the reverse. And it doesn't matter, though, because think about it. How many, how many guys are there from 2015? Not a lot. So they've changed over personnel. They've changed over the defense. They've changed over the offense. And it just seems every time it's Jacob the Grom show. He's, he, it's almost like the Little League game. He plays the Little League game every time. He gets two hits, gets an RBI, goes seven, strikes out ten. It's Little League for him, the, the way that he goes through these lineups. And it's got to be frustrating. And I don't know how he does it because, I mean, most of us would have cracked by now. But it's like he's almost he almost expects that. And I love that talking about accountability. I'll never forget. He gave up a home run and they lost one nothing. And he said, had I not given up a home run, I wouldn't have gotten a loss. It's my fault. Said it with a sincere face, like not even a a joking matter. I, I was like, holy cow. That's the standard that he holds himself to is that my job is to not give up any runs. And that's why it was Cy Young after Cy Young. And I mean, quite frankly, you know, Trevor Bauer had a nice year. But you could have made an argument for Jacob DeGrom for Cy Young yet again. And he's pitching to that level yet again. This is the, 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 where he's at. Few pitchers have been. Um, I've talked with, with Dwight Gooden, who, you know, always goes back to that 84-85 season. And he won 20, you know, 24 games or something like that. Or like 24 and three. That, it's unheard of to have that chance to win that many games. And it's not because Jake is only going five innings. Jake is going seven, eight innings. But it's like, Damn, if he only went one more inning, he'd win more games. 
And I still don't think it would work out that way because it's either the bullpen blows it, somebody makes an error to let him tie it, or the or they don't score enough runs to push him over the top. It, it, it's one of the most impressive things uh, I will ever see in baseball is, is a pitcher who can have that kind of mindset every single time out there. Like it, it's not me versus the world, but I'm going to do my part. That's all I can control. And I, I think I have a weird theory on this because I think some of it is some of it was just bad Mets teams, you know, in 2016 range, 2015, where they were, mm-hmm. they were good in 15, but then you have know, 17, 18, they underachieve a yeah. little bit. And I think that kind of just was the reality of the situation where the offense just wasn't great. And ultimately like they just didn't put up that great in numbers. And then the narrative started to build itself. And then now as we stand today with a really good Mets team, but that narrative is still alive. It almost seems like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy where now you have the players thinking about it, even though they had nothing to do with it three years ago, kind of like you talked about with the turnover. So do you think it's almost become more of this like mythical thing that is just weighing on players? Like as someone that used to be in the clubhouse is someone that used to, to live it. Like, I feel like you can't go into a Jacob deGrom start now without some sort of undertone of like, they better get him some runs today. I guarantee you, if you did the research of opponent starters versus Jacob DeGrom, that pitcher would win four Cy Youngs in a row. Like all these different guys, you know what I mean? Like those numbers must be astronomically low ERA. A lot of, you know, innings pitch. And yeah, do they, the Mets get hits? They get hits, but they don't, don't score a ton of runs. And it's, it's I, I can't see how it could be. Because with the amount of hitters that you have, Pete Alonso could be in the yard at any time. You know, McNeil's such a good hitter. You got Conforto was normally such a good hitter. You got Medorna, and they're still doing the same thing. I don't get it. I wish that if I had those answers, I wouldn't be talking to you guys. I'd be sitting right next to probably Sandy Alderson and, and, and Steve Cohen right now to uh, help figure out the rest of this. So, Pete Alonso, we, we get uh, questions on our TikTok and our Instagram at Project the Plate, Seamus Plug, by the way. Um, we get questions about Pete Alonso every single day. He's a guy that set the rookie home run record at 53 home runs. But last year, he struggled a little bit, right? I know short sample size, 60-game season, but we, we're down in average. We're down in on-base percentage. We're down in slugging. And then even this year, we're down another 30 points across the board in those stats. Mm-hmm. This is a guy that could be the best power hitter in baseball, but could also, I don't want to say this, but could turn into a Chris Davis-esque player. Is Chris Pete, Davis, where do you see Pete Alonso going this season? I see Pete Alonso getting back to on track to where he was. Although he had a really bad season last year, he still was third in baseball, I think it was, with 16 home runs in that short amount of time. Yes, he was pressing. Yes, he was trying to hit 53 home run, 54 home runs in only 60 games. We saw that with his swing and chasing a lot. But he's definitely one of the uh, – he's not just a power hitter. I, I've seen him too many times with two strikes be able to hit the ball all over the field. Um, and I love that about him. And I do like the fact that he can hopefully learn to relax a little bit more because he does have help around him. Normally, normally he does. Right now, it hasn't started out that way. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't believe Conforto is going to continue to bat 150. I don't believe Lindgren is going to bat right around. You know, he had the three for four last night, but, you know, the low 200s, you got McNeil batting below 200. I don't believe that's going to be the case here. So uh, when Pete Alonso realizes that it's not just 
him and all or nothing swings. He's never been that guy. And I think it's some of why he made the team out of camp a few years ago is because he did not take the all or nothing swing. It was a two strike approach that impressed people the most. Um, it was his ability to understand what he was going to see and what he was going to get with runner in scoring position. You're not going to get that cookie middle, middle in. Why are you swinging for the moon? You know, when all we need you to do is hit a nice hard line drive the other way. So he's in a, a very impressive hitter. He's a very impressive person. And I think he gets it from day one. That's something that Robinson Cano had said about him. He's like, he's a guy who gets it. He, he totally understands his ability and why he's special, but he's working on his weaknesses all day long, every day to try and get better. But he does know that when he swings the bat, he's a game changer. And, I mean, you've seen some of the most hellacious home runs during that first year. And I still think um, he's just scratching the surface when it comes to being a more complete hitter. Yeah, one of the things with Alonzo, and, and I totally understand some of the concerns, but people refer to last year as like a down year. And, and for him, compared to that rookie year, it was. But if a bad year for me is an 817 OPS, like I, you got to be pretty darn right. good, right? Oh, yeah. And, and I think some of that is, is the pressing, like you said. And I mean, that swing he took yesterday, though, that, that bomb he hit. A Wrigley Field. I mean, it's, it's just an, a, an example of how much power he can offer. But you mentioned some of the guys really underachieving so far in this lineup for the Mets. And it seems like the Mets, they have a lot of depth. They have tons of big leaguers on that bench that have been regulars recently. And it mm-hmm. seems like they're still trying to find that exact, you know, I guess just way to allocate all those players to allocate some of the ABs and the right lineup to move with forward too. Uh, how often do you usually see something like this with an offense, this talented struggle? And at what point do you start to get concerned? I know it's early. I'm not saying you should get concerned yet, but at what mm-hmm. point do you start to worry about some of these guys not performing the way they should when this lineup is so talented one through eight? Yeah, I, I think it, it's more so that you, you kind of have to weather the storm. Not every team starts out hot. Not every team starts out clicking on all cylinders, and yet they're still in first place. Um, so the team element that's involved is you look at wins and losses when it comes to that. Um, and they know and they know they're better than what they're doing right now. So I don't see that as uh, – and the way that this, this season has started, with seven postponements early on, starting three days later with COVID. So it's been very, very uh, disjointed from the very beginning. And so you just hope to see that, hey, you know what? When they have a two-week stretch where they're not, you know, uh, not sure if they're playing or not, if they're going to get snowed out, if they're going to get rained out. Um, I think that's when you'll start to see this team get better and better. And I, I have no concerns because, like I said, at the end of the day, I'm looking up right now and they're still in first place as poorly as they're hitting the ball and scoring runs, the starting, the starters are doing a phenomenal job. Mostly the defense has been a little suspect and we were expecting that from some of the, uh, those guys like uh, JD Davis. Um, but I do think that they have so much talent and the depth has been, like you said, you have guys who just started recently who are now depth pieces that, and that makes that a very potent lineup. And I just always wonder about, is there too much, uh, there are too many pieces that you're trying to, you know, put together and piece the puzzle. And then you're trying to look at the right matchups and even opening day. I will go back to Dominic Smith's sitting the bench on opening day. And, you know, Pilar came up with bases loaded in that early in that game against Matt Moore. Matt Moore, not against, you know, one of the best pitchers in the game. So why is Dominic Smith sitting on the bench and not pinch hitting when they um, wound up actually uh, going to the righty? That's the thing I didn't understand. But it's it's early in the season even the manager and that's something i speak about on the podcast is that remember he was the first year manager last year and he made plenty of mistakes he's got to be better 
um, with some of the moves that he makes or some of the moves that they allow him to make, which has been very curious to watch. Um, something like that. I, I don't see how I would not have went to Dominic Smith early with the with uh, one out, bases loaded, and they brought in a right-handed pitcher. Why would you not go to Dominic Smith? One swing of the bat, and it's a grand slam in Philadelphia, and that game has totally changed. You know what I mean? So it's it's all a learning process, but I think this team is way too talented. And they're getting – wait till they get the pieces back. You got Lugo coming back. You got Syndergaard coming back. And you got Carrasco coming back. I mean, uh, I, I look for June to be where we start saying, wow, this is a special kind of team. And there are some Mets who have had tough starts to the season, but one player who hasn't, who I personally love, I've been on this guy for a couple of years now, Brandon Nimmo is mm-hmm. lighting shit up. He mm-hmm. is one of, I think, the best center fielders in the game. I ranked him fifth before the season. I think he could climb higher than that. He's hitting almost 400. He gets on base. He runs the bases, plays good defense. Talk about Brandon Nimmo because I want to hear your insight on him rather than just me talking to my own brain. Brandon Nimmo, yes. You and the shredder, uh, Brian mm-hmm. Kenny's machine, had him ranked fifth. And a lot of people have big, long pauses and kind of their mouths were wide open because we thought it was inevitable that they were going to go after Springer. Uh, he was a Northeast kid, you know, went to UConn, seemed like a great fit. We thought they were going to go after Real Muto. They thought they were going to go after Bauer. And yet the Mets didn't make any of those big money moves. Um, you know, they made the trade to get Lindor and then they locked him up. That was the big money move of the offseason. Brandon Nimmo is really, really coming into his own. And you have to tip your cap to the Mets uh, front office for having that kind of confidence in him. We know he's a guy who likes to get on base. We know he's a guy who is a very good athlete. He's probably second on the team when it comes to speed. Um, he is also uh, plays the outfield decent enough. He's a strong enough arm to make the throws that he needs to make. With him, it was more about, I guess, making him comfortable enough because with all the noise around him, telling him how bad of a center fielder he was, and yet you and the shredder said he was fifth in all of baseball. That's something that he kind of – he hit the ground running in spring training and never looked back. He's hitting the ball hard, and that's something he could always do. He's not trying to lift the ball and hit home runs, but he's hitting line drives all over the place. Um, he's able to, you know, hit those little balls into the dirt and beat them out because of his speed. Uh, and, and what I love about Nimmo is I still think that he can be a 20 to 25 home run guy. Um, I totally agree. Yeah, I, I think he's he's really reminds me of a left-handed Hunter Pence, like his body type, the way he's kind of gangly and the way he walks around, the way he moves. It doesn't look smooth. And so you're like, oh, this guy can't do it. And that's what I think he takes that approach and he takes that kind of chip on his shoulder and he goes out there and he gets the job done. So I've always been impressed with Nimmo. And I think that, um, you know, he, he's he's as long like every Met fan, right? As long as he doesn't mess up, he's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he's, 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 but he's really looks very, very comfortable out there. And he's really carried this lineup um, because if you look past him and, and maybe one other guy, it's been really slim pickings for guys who are coming through in the clutch and guys who are, you know, even getting on base. So uh, he's definitely a table setter for them. And as we wrap up, because I know you got to run in a minute, but there's one question I have to ask you as I'm a South Florida native, uh, grew up diehard uh, Miami Marlins, Florida Marlins fan. And um, you're a pitcher and you're also a Mets guy. So I got to ask you this because I feel like you're going to have both sides of this here. What was your take on the Michael Conforto hit by pitch? 
with the bases loaded there where the Mets win that ball game. And uh, I, honestly, that's it. I just want to hear your take on that as a Marlins fan from a pitcher and Mets guy. Uh, well, it's very simple for me because as a guy who thinks the world of Michael Conforto and his abilities, that showed me where he's at right now, currently in the beginning of the season, how lost he is. That with a two-strike count on a breaking ball that was in the middle of the plate. Well, not in the middle, but the middle end of the plate. He decided to go with the elbow pad leaning out to get hit. It wasn't his bat to protect or follow off. It wasn't like he took a half swing and it hit him in the hand. No, he thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be a strike. I'm fooled. What can I do? And somehow in a split second, stuck out his elbow. Yeah. Um, Stuck out his elbow. And what did he do? He gets hit. It's one of the weakest ways you could lose a ball game uh, on what should have technically been a strikeout. Um, it, I was disappointed. I, as I said on our podcast, look, I'll take the win, but I am not celebrating it. My co-host, Jake Brown, was going nuts. What a win. What a warrior. Way to take one for the team. Um, I really want to. So what I, what I plan to do is at some point this year, I'm going to put him in all that, all that body armor, and I'm going to throw balls at him and show him how it doesn't hurt at all when you have all that body armor on. Um, but I want him to be able to see what it's like to try and take a pitch, uh, one for the team, as he says, because that, that was pretty weak. And yes, I, I, I have to give credit to Don Mattingly because he kind of, you know, he, he said what he needed to say without actually saying what he really wanted to say. Um, but I still look for them to get even with him at some point this year. I think we're going to see him uh, go to first base a little more gingerly because they're going to take their revenge on that. And as we, as we wrap up, um, I hope you can give our listeners just a little bit of what your thinking is about MLB thinking about moving the mound back a foot. I hate it. And I assume as a pitcher, you hate it too. It's one of the dumbest ideas in a long, long time. Um, And if the people who are sitting in offices, uh, they're supposed to be the competition committee, which is made of former major league players are even thinking of allowing that and changing what has made the game what it is for all this time. Well, there, there is no nothing that uh, but more and more injuries that are going to happen from it. Uh, I think it's totally wrong to even make these younger kids in the minor leagues and the, uh, the independent leagues be guinea pigs for this. Um, it, it's almost criminal because I remember they did it to the Atlantic League with all the different rule changes that they tried and stuff like that. It's a shame because these guys are trying to make their way to the major leagues. They're trying to make their way back to affiliated baseball. And here they are, you know, running through hoops just for major league baseball to try and experiment with the game. That's the wrong way to do it. And they're complaining about pitchers are throwing so much harder. Now they're not actually throwing harder. You look it up. They're measuring from a different distance. Now they're measuring from 55 feet. The algorithm now has changed because somebody finally figured out that at 60 feet, six inches, that's where you're standing, not where you're releasing the ball. So you finally have a five foot on average stride and you're releasing the ball at 55 feet. Therefore, end of which they now change the algorithm. It makes everybody's velocity jump up three to four miles an hour. And now across baseball, everybody's like, oh, my God, these guys throw so hard. It's not that they throw so hard is that they don't have the ability to pitch with anything other than a hard fastball and a ball that they can spin and hope and get a swing and a miss. We see a lot of swings and misses. We see a lot of high velocity with a, with a lot of spin rate breaking balls, but we don't see guys that can truly pitch and throw three to four pitches. So when you see guys like the Grom, you see guys like Trevor Bauer, you see guys like even Marcus Stroman 
go out in Colorado without a 95 mile an hour fastball and just dominate for eight innings, you can learn to appreciate what pitching really is again. And uh, I look, I look forward to a lot more of that. And uh, I think if they ever move the mound back, then they're doing a disservice to the great game of baseball. Well, thank you so much for coming next time. I won't disrespect Chris, uh, Pete Alonzo with the Chris Davis jokes. Hopefully if, if you want to come back on next time, hopefully they'll still be throwing at 60 feet, six inches, not 61 go. feet, six inches. Oh, good God. No, thank Doesn't you. Doesn't yes. horrible, even the name? I, I only want to think about it, but I thank you very much, you guys, for having me. This was a pleasure. And trust me, uh, there's a lot more to talk about still. But thank goodness I had that nice long career, huh? Yeah, that was awesome. Thank you so much, Nelson. <laughs> appreciate really it, guys. appreciate it. Hope you all enjoyed that interview with Nelson Figueroa. I mean, how awesome is he? I mean, crazy story. And, you know, I like talking to those guys, the guys that really just were able to grind it out and have so many incredible stories through their career, just as much as talking to the stars, right? Because you have so many cool things that you get to hear from them. And one of the things that really stood out to me in that interview that he said was like, I'm paraphrasing, but just a step below the big lights is the jungle. And yeah. I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize. And it was really cool to, to see him kind of just shine that and, and explain just how difficult it is. We look at these guys up on the field as these superstars and some of them had an easier path than others, but to just kind of realize the human aspect to it, I think is really important. I'm glad we were able to kind of get that um, and get that to the listeners too, to be able to see the human aspect of these big league baseball players and a lot that goes into it. And just on the diamond in particular, Nelson Figueroa is such an interesting pitcher, right? Because he has 20 plus years of experience. He's the all-time leader in strikeouts in the minor leagues. And he played nine seasons in the bigs. But he wasn't a guy who ever relied on high velocity, things that we're seeing so much with these pitchers these days. He was able to, you know, compete every single day with under 90 miles an hour on the fastball, working on command. Do you think that will make a comeback Because baseball is so cyclical, right? Guys throw 95, guys throw 96, and then it switches to, all right, now we need guys who throw in the low or high 80s with some good command. I feel like once people zig, other people zag. Do you think, or do you see any, you're the prospect guy. Are there any prospects throwing in the high 80s, in the low 90s that could make an impact soon? You know, it's a great question because I think that's part of the problem that we see with the prospecting and, and just scouting in general is like, you don't throw 95, sorry, you know, I'm going to yeah. keep you out of the top prospect list. I'm not going to worry about you and, and those things. And I, I think the VLO is really important. Of course, like we, nobody's disputing that neither are you, but I think you bring up a good point, which is like, eventually I really think that that hitters are going to start to get used to, and they already have like, how many times do we see guys pumping a hundred and then exactly. they get shelled? So now it's become spin rates. Now it's become, you know, getting the sharper breaking ball. Now it's how important is the third pitch? We're seeing dudes with two pitches, Chris Paddock gets shelled, you know? So I think when you consider that there could be a revolution where, I mean, this is something we're actually working on with, I've been talking about with our analytics guy, Colby, that there is actually, and we're diving into this lower spin guys that have success. So like the, we are diving into that. That's a little bit of a case study, but there's guys that have consistently low spin that actually have a lot of success too. And there's some outliers in that regard. So if you're almost different from what everybody's used to, maybe you can have some success there too. It's about the movement. I think about a Mike fires, right? How does a guy like Mike fires throw two no hitters? Yeah. He's been inconsistent at times, but 
you know, he's a guy that at, when he's on, he's been unhittable twice and it's not a high velocity from him. He's just able to keep guys off balance and mix things up. I think there's going to be certain pitchers that break that mold, but I think we're kind of in that revolution here where throwing hard is always going to take the upper hand. But I do think you have a point there where there's going to be some underrated players that break through as it pertains to prospects. It is hard to find like a high level, highly regarded prospect that doesn't throw absolute fuzz. And that's the crazy thing. Even asking, even asking you about that and, and maybe no name comes to mind. That just goes to show the lack of pitchers that there are that, rely solely on command. Yeah. I mean, you know, I can give you like a few guys that look decent and then they end up really struggling at the major league level. And Nick Knighter with the Marlins is one that I think of that was low nineties carved up minor league hitters. Then he gets to the majors and he just got shelled and got optioned. And so I just don't really know what the deal is there. I I think there's going to be a lot of studying that goes into that because there's going to be pitchers that can defy that, but it seems like their margin for error is razor thin. Like, are we ever going to see a Greg Maddox type again? Are we ever going to see somebody like that? That's going to be the question. I think Nelson did have a good point, which was there are more throwers than pitchers now. And uh, maybe there'll be more of an emphasis on the pitching side of things. And we'll see more guys starting to come through like that. But the fact that, yeah, I can name probably a thousand prospects off the top of my head. And I can't think of a guy that I'm like, okay, that guy's a stud in the making, but he doesn't throw over 93. Like that, that's either an issue with scouting and an issue with my mentality as well. I guess I'm a little guilty of it too, or there's just really not that many guys like that. I just really hope Kyle Hendricks isn't the last of that breed. You know, Kyle Hendricks, we think is 38 years old, but he's really closer to 32 and he might pitch in the the big leagues for eight to 10 more years with the way he can command the ball. And you need guys like that. You need guys who can fill up innings and get outs. But how about this arm next time when we have you on the podcast, we'll do a way deeper dive into velocity. We'll do a deeper dive into prospects and all that next time we have you on, but thank you everybody for listening arm. You got anything to say before we, uh, Uh, we got Padres Dodgers, uh, another few games coming up. I mean, I think every single time that a Padres-Dodgers game isn't on national TV, Major League Baseball is squandering a really big opportunity because every single one of those ball games is must-see TV. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing you you and Jack's breakdown on that. Maybe I'll be on to talk a little bit about it. And I'll have a laundry list of low velo guys ready to go <laughs> for you prospect-wise. Perfect. Well, that's our interview with Nelson Figueroa, um, legend of the Mets, SNY, New York Post. Go check out his podcast, Amazing But True, uh, New York Mets podcast based on the New York Post, which you can find on Spotify, Apple Music, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your uh, – can you even get podcasts on Apple Music? No, It's Apple Podcasts, I think. Apple Podcasts, whatever like that Amazon is. got like Amazon Podcasts now, they, they, anywhere. And you could also find our podcast on any one of those random apps – Apple Podcast, not Apple Music, Spotify, Project the Plate, also TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. So thank you, everybody. And that's it.